0: Okay, here we are. Episode one of my podcast, The General Speech. Uh, welcome. Thanks for thanks for tuning in. I'm um, not going to talk too much here and now because I want to get into the the meat of this, which is a conversation with my old friend raul I'll tell you a little bit more about that in just a moment. Um, but before we do, as it's the first episode, let me just give you a quick introduction to what this is, to what we're doing. Um, if you've ever seen the film called Babette's Feast or read the book, you might remember a scene in which General Lohenhelm addresses the villagers of the Scandinavian uh, village where it takes place. Um, what had happened until that point was a young French refugee, Babette, um, found a place to live with uh, a couple of sisters in this tiny, tiny little Scandinavian Um, ultra-conservative Protestant village. And Babette, during the story, during the book, during the film, um, wins the French lottery uh, and has sent her winnings and decides to use her winnings to thank the people who showed her her, the the hospitality and who gave her refuge. Um, And she thanks them by cooking them this amazing, lavish, decadent meal, this feast. Um, But the villagers are so caught up in their conservative religious mindset that they're unable to enjoy the feast that's put in front of them. They see the feast as being decadent, as being uh, sinful to enjoy something so good. So if you're into your Bible stories, they kind of play the role of Judas. when, When the woman comes in with expensive perfume to wash Jesus' feet and Judas says, What a waste. What a waste of money and of resources that could have been helped, uh, could have been used to do something noble to, to help the poor. That's kind of what the villagers mentality is like. What a waste. What a waste to have this decadence. So they're having this feast, they're they're sitting around the table and the villagers have decided that we'll eat the food so as to not be rude, but we won't enjoy it because to enjoy it would be sinful. So they eat the food in silence and Babette Babette, doesn't know what's going on and why they don't seem to be enjoying her food. And the general who's visiting the village also doesn't know what's going on, but he begins to piece things together because he's familiar with the village. And at one point he stands up and addresses the people around the table Now I'm going to read to you what he says. This is from the book. I have to tell you, I haven't read the book, um, but I've seen the film and it's pretty similar. And this was easier than finding a clip from the film. So the general stands up. He addresses these villagers who have this amazing gift before them that they're not enjoying. And the general says, Man, my friends, is frail and foolish. We have all of us been told that grace is to be found in the universe. But in our human foolishness and short-sightedness, we imagine divine grace to be finite. For this reason, we tremble. We tremble before making our choice in life, and after having made it again, we tremble in fear of having chosen wrong. But the moment comes when our eyes are opened, and we see and realise that grace is infinite. Grace, my friends, demands nothing from us but that we shall await it with confidence and acknowledge it in gratitude. Grace, brothers and sisters, makes no conditions and singles out none of us in particular. Grace takes us all to its bosom and proclaims general amnesty. See, that which we have chosen is given us, and that which we have refused is also and at the same time granted us. Aye that which we have rejected is poured upon us abundantly for mercy and truth have met together and righteousness and bliss have kissed each other and that kind of is a, is a turning point in the story for the villagers and for babette Um, And that that, that, that speech, sorry, is really important to me um, because what the general is saying to the villagers is, look, you don't have to choose between enjoying the gift that is presented to you, between enjoying this feast that Babette has cooked for you and your religion. You can have both. You can do both. You don't have to choose between living life well and enjoying it and drinking deeply from the cup of life and believing in Justice and faith and righteousness and good things. You can have both. You can enjoy life. You can pursue things that will make you happy and still be a good and a righteous person. Righteousness and bliss have kissed each other. That's the message of the Gospels. That's the message of Christianity. Jesus has done the hard work so that we don't have to. We are free now to enjoy life and we can enjoy it without trembling at every decision that we make, in case we mess up and our eternal soul uh, is is threatened with, with punishment or annihilation or, or whatever it is. It's okay. It's been dealt with. You are free to enjoy life. Enjoy the feast that's before you, guilt-free. That's the message that the General is giving. And those are the themes that I want to explore in this podcast. Because those are themes which... For most of my life, I found really difficult to talk about. Or actually, I just didn't talk about. Because I had in me that same mindset that the villagers have, which kind of says, look, if it's enjoyable, if it's fun, if you're drawing pleasure from it, there's probably something wrong with it. So I was growing up in the 21st century or in the late 20th century, with a kind of 1950s sense of morality around sex drugs and rock and roll. You know, if it's good if you enjoy it, be careful. It's an, it's it's probably dangerous. It's probably bad for you. And the question which I have now at this chapter in my life is is to do with uh, I'm still religious. I still believe in God and I still believe in My, I guess, religious duty is what you would call it, to love my fellow human and to put myself to one side for the sake of those who are in more need than me. But I also have this challenge of actually life here is a gift that this short life that we have on this earth is... Something which we can enjoy and we can live deeply and we can also make mistakes without worrying too much, without worrying at all um, about the state of our soul, because that's taken care of already. So I've recorded a few conversations um, with Friends and with actually even with people who uh, I've never met before, but who um, had some insights that I wanted to draw upon. Um, Not all of them are Christian. Uh, In fact, uh, I think probably most of them aren't Christian thinking about it. But those themes of religion, duty uh, versus uh, desire, pleasure, that kind of thing, that that comes up kind of time and again. Now, so this first conversation, uh, like I said earlier on, is with... One of my two oldest friends, when I was um, five, I moved to America uh, and we moved away when I was 10 and um, through social media and the internet, I've managed to find back a couple of the friends that I had while I was in primary school over there. My two closest friends um, at the time were Raul and Dave and I am lucky and feel honored to have those guys uh, back in my life after... 25 years since living there I went back to Pittsburgh where we used to live earlier this year before the lockdown kicked in and hung out with both of those guys and it was uh, an absolute joy and a, and a pleasure and a bright light in what's otherwise been quite a quite a difficult year um, globally as well as personally so this conversation is with Raoul, and um, I was interested in talking to Raul because we we met through church our parents brought us to the same church and we have the same kind of moderately conservative religious background uh we were both kind of taught the same things as uh kind of between five and ten year olds and uh Raul in in between the time of me leaving America and me getting back in touch with him in the past few years uh kind of kind of decided that religion wasn't for him um and obviously I've been on a similar journey but uh still still have the religion thing, still do that. So I thought it would be interesting to talk with my old friend um, about what it was in our lives that led us down these different paths. Um, and actually, as is always the case in conversations like this, recognising that we have more in common um, than, than we realise. Um, and we talk a bit... So th- this is recorded... Um, earlier this summer and it happened to be just at the peak of the kind of uh black lives matter protests and movement when that stuff was really i mean it, it's obviously rightly still going on but it was really really at the forefront of the news at the time when raul and i were talking uh, and raul is a guy with mixed heritage uh, he's uh, half black and half mexican um so we talk a bit about tribalism um we talk about the divisions that the world is facing at the moment And we talk about religion and how religion can help to fuel those divisions, uh, but can also, I hope, help to heal those divisions. So I'm not going to say any more. Thanks again for tuning in. Um, I am going to hand you over to my good friend, uh, (laughs) Raul. So we were, um, for, for the maybe three people who are listening to this or who will listen to it when it goes out, (laughs) um, we, you and I hung out together earlier this year in Pittsburgh, um, which, which was great. Um, so, uh, just very briefly, it's, it's worth kind of saying that you and I, uh, kind of grew up together when we were little. I moved away from America when I was 10, but kind of between the ages of five and 10, we, we, our parents went to the same church and, and we hung out and were friends. And then I moved to Europe. Um, and I guess it was probably through Facebook that we found each other back originally, or, or even by email. I can't really remember, but, but then earlier this year we hung out for the first time, um, since I was 10. So for the first time in, uh, it's like 25 years, um, which is crazy. And it was amazing to, to meet your wife and your kids and, and, also just to see Pittsburgh for the first time since all that time. And we had this experience together, um, which, uh, which was a really like, it was like, a, it was almost like a cultural experience that, um, was, was just, um, I mean, it was weird, but I'm, I'm glad that I experienced it in a way because it was really interesting to see. You probably know the experience I'm talking about, but so, um, I think it was you who had decided one of us had decided that it would be cool to go back and see that old church that we grew up in together. Right. Yep. Um, and so you drove me there and we went there and, um, you know, just, just heading into the car park, had that kind of little flood of nostalgia of like, Oh wow. Yeah, man, I, rem- I, I remember this car park. I remember the building. It's amazing. Um, and we got to the front door of the church and all of the lights were off and it was all closed. Um, but w- what what was it was there was it it wasn't even that there was some music playing or something but i think we could maybe just see that the door was slightly open oh no that was there was a car that was in the car park and so we thought well, someone must be here yep. Um. so we kind of tried the door and the door opened and i was kind of like cool man let's go in let's go explore what's the worst that can happen and you <laughs> you were much more sensible and kind of like well i don't know maybe breaking and entering <laughs> isn't the best thing to do um so we hung around outside for a little bit trying to figure it out. And um, we walked around the building and as we walked around, we heard an alarm going off like a burglar alarm um, and realized that we had potentially tripped that when we, when we pushed the door open. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, my, my kind of knee jerk reaction was like, shit, let's get out of here. <laughs> um, but you, again, were much more sensible, and you called the um security uh, company whose number was outside of the church, and they um, let us know that the police were on their way, and so you called the police to let them know. And what was really interesting, and I think we talked about this afterwards, was um seeing your different approach to dealing with the police in America to the one that I would have been used to here in the U.K., and I think that's partly because we were in America, um, but also partly because I'm white um and you're black. Um mm-hmm. and there was I I felt really kind of like, uh you know, it'll be funny. The police will show up and we'll all have a good laugh together about what a silly mistake this is and that kind of thing. And I realize now with hindsight that I haven't grown up in the same way that you have with stories in the news every day about police killing people who look like me for doing nothing. Um, and it felt to me, and it, obviously I'd be interested to hear what your thoughts actually were, but it felt to me like you had you had a lot more nerves around that situation. Like you were more nervous, I mean, um, than I was. And, and I guess kind of rightly so. And hearing all of the Black Lives Matter stuff that's been going on in the past month or so brought that memory back to mind for me of, of the lived reality of being a black man in America and interactions with the police and how different that is to being a white man in the UK and my interactions with the police. Is that a fair observation? Yeah, I think very much so.
1: I mean, um, uh, you know, I I definitely wanted to make sure that I wasn't going to leave that day having some, you know, description of me out there um, that, hey, you know, this guy, you know, this guy tried to break into our church and, you know, took off and fled on foot or what, you know, whatever it is. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. And I was also, you know, I was I was somewhat nervous. I mean, I, I've never had a, um, a bad interaction with a police officer. Um, and at the same time, so many of these um, interactions go south pretty quick and start out just normal interactions. You know, somebody's sometimes just walking down the street and, you know, matches some description. I had, I had a time in my life when I was, uh, in a parked car, uh, with somebody and, uh, the police had got a call that there was a, um, a similar looking vehicle. I I was in a red car and there's some red car with uh, a biracial couple driving around, um, and they parked somewhere and they were fighting and screaming and, the person who called the police thought that the woman might be in danger and me and this other person matched that description and were in the same general area. We were looking for uh, a car dealership and we're just, you know, just mundane stuff. I got lost and was you know, parked on the side to look at the maps for uh, directions. Mm. Um, and then I looked up and uh, because I noticed activity, you know, above my, you know, where my windshield was and a cop car came screeching around the corner in front of me and screeching to a halt and cops like just jumped out of the vehicle with their hands on their guns. And no then way. in the rearview mirror at the same time, I saw cops behind us do the exact same thing. So we just went, I went from like just, you know, chilling, lost, looking at maps completely, you know, relaxed on my day off to surrounded by cops with guns drawn closing in on me. And it was just a, you know, uh, I'm sure that the, you know, they're trained to, surprise you and and you know all that kind of stuff to get the upper hand but uh but still it was a pretty you know scary experience and and you know we did eventually like sort out like i think there was something different about the two vehicles mine was like a two-door and the one they were looking for was a four-door but um you're, wow. you know i think you're definitely aware that there is a huge power disparity whenever you're dealing with the cops as a black person uh um, yeah and you yeah and and I mean there's a lot of debate around this but you know I guess you could say well maybe if you conceal carry and you also legally have a weapon then the power disparity is more even but you know clearly the downside there is then, then you are a black person who is armed and that's yeah kind of the only thing worse than being a black person you know what I mean yeah yeah so uh yeah so I was Man, you that's... know in the church scenario I was definitely a little bit nervous but at the same time you know uh not i wasn't i wasn't terrified or anything i mean i was pretty sure it was gonna work out okay
0: yeah 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 we have um just i mean i know cops has just been canceled hasn't it over there the tv show um but but obviously we have a similar kind of uh you know like not live action reality tv type police uh tv shows here in the uk and there's one i can't remember what it's called i think it might be called road wars or something like that (laughs) um which which has clips from uh so it'll be like shots of stuff that happens here in the uk and then every now and again it'll be clips of stuff that happens in america and the clips that happen in america are always like much better television than the (laughs) than the clips that happen here in the uk because the uk cops are kind of like um you know almost like oh ever sorry sorry to bother you um a bit of a kerfuffle. <laughs> <laughs> whereas obviously like the clips in america like like exactly as you say like screeching around the corner coming out pointing the guns get down on the fucking ground like right, like right. just a high octane um and it it makes for obviously exciting tv to watch but also just just a it, i mean it's it's horrible man like it's so like you know even taking the racism thing out of the equation, just the, the power trip, you know, that, that, that kind of culture breeds in people just feels like, you know, I mean, it's almost like no wonder people get shot, right? Like, like that's the other thing. Like here in the UK, generally police don't have guns. Um, so there are special trained units who have guns who'll get called in if, if like firearms are required, but most policemen don't have guns, but, yeah, man, just giving, you know, potentially kind of alpha male type characters guns and unlimited freedom. It's like, well, well you know, no wonder shit goes south, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think it's, you know, and I think it's, uh, again, really complicated. I mean, I'm sure that there are people who join the police force out of a genuine wish to, you know, I mean, just protect and serve, like protect people and serve those people and kind of get to be an official Good Samaritan um, who is willing to risk their life for, like, the benefit of other people. I'm sure that there are people like that. And Mm -hmm. I've never been a cop, so I can't speak to the culture from any sort of, like, internal perspective, you know? Yeah, Um, yeah. But as an outside observer, it does seem like um, they may be trained to – to dominate in, in such, you know, in situations to like gain control, uh, total control of situations and, um, may not, may not emphasize, uh, not only de escalation but actually avoiding escalation in the first place, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. and I think that maybe there are some opportunities now that we have, um, new, you know, new types of technology, um, to avoid these sorts of escalations. So, in the situation with with uh, you know me and my friend who were in the car, um, I don't know if um, the cops maybe could maybe they could have established communication from like a further distance away or or something mm. like that. Um, mm. You know, a lot of times it seems like. These situations need split second decisions because they've been pushed to that point where there isn't any time to react and, and the actors are very close to one another and that sort of thing. So, you know, I don't know, again, this is from an external perspective, but I just think that it, it is like cops sometimes when you watch these videos, it really is like, um, we're just a little bit too quick to action, you know, and at the same time, the cops are in a tough spot, right? Because in the United States, everyone has a gun and of a course, lot, yeah, you know man. what I mean? Everyone has a gun and a lot of people conceal carry. And so you legitimately don't know, I mean, you could be at a kid's birthday party and get called to a disturbance and, and shots could, you know, ring out from some patron of this kid's birthday party. I mean, you just, I'm sure that's happened before. You never know and And so there's also kind of you know this issue where everyone's armed and and you don't know who is who and um yeah, it's just kind of a mess you
0: know? so um it was just earlier this week actually uh we so in in the job that I literally have just left this Friday was my last day and I'm about to start a new job, but in, in the job that I've just finished, we brought together a group of young people, um, in, in a, in a zoom chat. Um, and we talked about the black lives matter thing. Um, and the part of London where I was working in East London is very ethnically diverse, very culturally mixed. And one of the young people was saying something which I thought was really just, just, spot on and really quite beautiful which he was saying you know for him growing up in that part of east london has meant that he doesn't fear or feel different about people because of the color of their skin because he's always grown up with uh, this is a black young guy talking he's grown up with white people and asian people and people from all over the world christians muslims whatever and that's just his his normality and he was saying that the 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 almost the key to tackling tribalism is seeing the human face of the people of the other tribe. So um, certainly here in the UK, the places where um, kind of, I guess, xenophobic close the borders type politics really have their stronghold are in parts of the country, which are predominantly white actually, where there isn't much ethnic mixing. Um, And, I think it's easier to be scared of or to hate somebody who you don't really know. Um, and I guess then the question is, how do we, how do we bring people together in such a way that they can see the human face of the people that they've been taught to hate? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and that's, I mean, I, I won't go on about Girard for too long, but that's kind of his conclusion. He, he ultimately brings it back to, um, so he, he was an atheist uh in France in the sixties and um looked at the Bible as a kind of piece of literature and in in his engagement of the Bible, almost coming to it cold like I was talking about just now, you know, without all the cultural baggage. Um he, he then became a Christian because what he saw in the Jesus story, the he he kind of writes about what's redemptive about the Jesus story is the people who have just ganged up together to kill him have this moment of oh my god what have we done you know there's a moment of like oh the blood's on my hands and there's an innocent victim that i've just made you know i've been involved in creating this victim and he says that's the moment of redemption that's what makes the jesus story so powerful and for what echoes through history is that moment of like oh god what have we done you know that So we had just before all the Brexit stuff kicked off in the UK, there was a whole big thing about immigration that people were talking about um, and some horrible, horrible language being used about people fleeing Syria and other war-torn countries and looking for refuge. And we had like national newspapers calling them cockroaches and talking about turning the gunships on them. Horrible, horrible, nasty language. And then there was a picture that was released of, uh, just a tragic image of a three year old boy who'd washed up, um, on the Mediterranean sea, drowned, just, just a picture of this dead kid. Um, and it broke people's hearts, rightly so. And the, the moment of heartbreak, the moment of, Oh man, that shouldn't have happened to that kid. That shouldn't have happened was the moment where the conversation started to shift a little bit. You know, it became less violent, less hateful. I mean, obviously there are still violent, hateful people, as there always will be, but there's something about seeing the humanity, seeing the victim, and maybe to an extent seeing the blood on our hands. That was the redemptive moment. That was the moment at which we wreck we we realized, oh man, we've really fucked up here. Um mm-hmm. and and something needs to change in the way that we talk about these guys. Um yeah.
1: Yeah. Well yeah. So I'm going to tie this back to what we started talking about, which is, you know, the, the, um, police violence, um, yeah. issue. Um, I get that, um, you know, this redemption thing makes sense to me, uh, that, you know, there's something terrible that happens and you participated in. And then in hindsight, you're like, oh man, that was, that was terrible. And then people kind of come together over that. And, um, you know, see, see the humanity and the people that were formerly their enemies and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and that kind of is happening with the uh, police violence thing too. I mean, we're, you know, after the fact, we're looking at these videotapes of these people who were harmed and, um, I mean, I can't, I can't claim that it's, uh, bringing everyone together because certainly there's a lot of divisive stuff around it. Um, but it is ushering some change, right? Um, we are getting some people who may have walked after committing these murders now being charged with things um, and possibly you know you know maybe will be convicted um, in some cases. But I think that we need to try to you know, back up and see if we can get to that place of redemption earlier before the terrible thing happens. you know
0: what I mean yeah, yeah, um,
1: there's like this whole you know, one of the Kind of talking points that you hear around police violence is people saying, "Well, you know, there are bad apples in every group of people, and so of course there's some bad apples in the police force." And yeah. you know, sure, that's that's true, um, but it would be great if we could figure out how to identify those bad apples before they kill somebody. You know what yeah. I mean? Because what Definitely. basically what we're the cost of identifying a bad apple right now is that they do something egregious and then we're like, okay, that, that person needs to go. It'd be cool if we could identify them, um, beforehand. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, and I, I and I think as far as like bringing, you know, so you were saying that, uh, we can kind of humanize the other side by sort of being around them and that kind of stuff. And I, I, that reminds me of this buddy that I have at work. Um, he and I went to the same school and his, he comes from a very conservative family that, uh, They used to run, uh, I think they may still uh, run a ranch. Um, They have like bison uh, that they sell and and this sort of thing. And uh, he grew up there, super conservative kind of setting. And then he went to the school that I went to. Uh, It's an engineering school. So you have people, like tons of international students from all over the place uh, go to this school. And there um, he met all these people from all over the world. And in the four years he was there, it, he basically did a 180 on his politics and he went from demonizing these people to saying look these are these are people just like me who have stories parallel to mine and mm. i get along with these people i actually like these people so if i like these yeah. people i probably like other people from those places um they aren't the enemy you know um, yeah yeah and, and and that's really shifted his his kind of thinking so i kind of wonder if this dovetails with you know our our problem of education uh, as well, because education is so prohibitively expensive I don't know how it is there, but here it's it's extremely expensive and it's not uncommon for people to pay off you know student loans for i mean decades after after oh, getting yeah. their degree and sometimes yeah, they don't even use the degree for whatever it is they end up doing professionally. sometimes they end up doing something completely different, uh, but they still have this debt and so I think if we could figure out a way to get people these educations that um, you know, the focus, you know, maybe you're joining an art program and the focus is to learn about art, but um, there aren't huge barriers to entry there. Art's a great example because a lot of people who study that aren't going to make a ton of money off of it, you know? Um, So they're going to have to do that in addition to something else. So why spend, you know, $80,000 on an art degree, But if you could not spend that much, if you could just spend, you know, I don't know, a couple grand or whatever, um, your focus could be learning art, but the byproduct could be that you could go to school with a bunch of other people and different kinds of people who are into that thing. And that is kind of, you know, like when we were talking before about people viewing other people through these different lenses and and breaking up into different groups based on what, you know, what the topic is at the time. Mm Mm-hmm. People could coalesce around these different things that they're interested in, and interested in enough to get a degree, and then um, hopefully that would have a little bit of a positive effect on this exposure thing that we're talking about.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Definitely. I'm just thinking um, in in my own. So, so I I grew up um, homophobic, basically. Um, I you know that I think probably starting right back in that church where you and I first became friends, um, and then, uh, get, you know, moving to the UK and finding a Christian youth group that I started going to as a teenager, um, who, you know, those guys were my best friends and I loved them, but the messages that were coming from the church were, were, were pretty homophobic. And that's, that's what I grew up in. And the kind of, um, you know, at best, it was a kind of, um, hate the sin, love the sinner kind of thing. You know, we don't need to actively hate gay people, but we don't need to approve of what they do either. And, you know, at worst it was these are people who have, you know, been corrupted by the devil or by evil or, or whatever it is and, and really kind of toxic stuff. And I really had that, that, uh, toxic stuff in my blood. You know, that was, that was kind of part of who I was. And I think back sometimes now to the things that I believed and even to the things that I said and articulated at that time. Um, and feel kind of real revulsion at the opinions that I held. And the reason why I'm saying this is relating it back to what you just said. What shifted in me or the, the time in my life in which I shifted, um, two things were happening simultaneously. One was I was getting an education, um, and particularly a theological education. I was studying theology, um, at university. Um, and that taught me to question the way I thought about faith and religion and how I understood what the Bible said and all that kind of stuff. So, so the education thing was key, but so was also meeting and getting to know some gay people and realizing that I like them and realizing that I'm no better than them. Um, And kind of, I guess simultaneously on the one hand, on an emotional level, kind of feeling like, man, if, if God hates these guys, then I'm not sure I can get behind God that feels that doesn't feel like the kind of God I want to be kind of involved with. And at the same time, getting a, a a kind of intellectual head level education that was telling me, you know, well, maybe God actually doesn't hate these guys. Maybe there's other ways of thinking about reading the Bible and interpreting what God's will is and that kind of thing. And um, so I think that those two things that you just described on, on the one hand, spending time with the people you've been taught to hear to, to hate and fear and two, learning to think better, I guess um, through through education. so learning to you know even just the thing of having to write essays where you have to reference what your thoughts are so you have to literally think about where does this idea come from? I probably didn't make it up, so where did I got it? Where did I get it? And just that process means, you know, I I think it would be quite hard to write a racist or a homophobic or a sexist essay in contemporary academics. I might be wrong, but I think it would be quite hard to do because you would have to justify those opinions. And I think those opinions tend not to hold water when held up to scrutiny. Do you know what I mean? When you have to justify them, it's hard to keep them going. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that that we...
1: You know, and again, this goes with that complexity thing. I think that the world is really complex, and kind of the older I get, the less I trust split-second gut reactions to stuff and knee-jerk reactions to stuff. You know, mm-hmm. um, because those—I um, don't know—you, it's really easy to jump to to jump to conclusions that way, or jump to actions that way. That if you really sat down and thought thought those things out um gave them the consideration that they deserved you might come to a very different conclusion you know
0: yeah yeah absolutely and like you said earlier on whatever side of the political religious whatever spectrum you're on that that kind of sense of uh i guess thinking reflectively can only be good yeah Yeah, I think so.
1: I think on the whole, so. And some people will think about these things and they will decide that they do believe whatever horrible thing it is that they believe or, you know, whatever. But but I have to think that, you know, these ideas are, I don't know how to put this succinctly, uh, the right ideas, (laughs) you know? Mm -hmm. It's right to not going, go around trying to, you know, get rid of this group of people or that group of people, you know, um, it's right to kind of get along to some degree so that, you know, you can have, you know, the things you want, but other people can, you know, do their thing as well. I mean, you know, these, um, yeah, I don't, I don't really know how to put that, but, but it, it certainly seems like it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a worthy of pursuit, you know, it's worthy of trying to like really sit down and, and, and figure out. Do you think that this tribalism that we're talking about is baked into the Bible? Not, not when you read it, maybe up close you know, at a really high level and you're making all these deep connections. But um, but more like if you're reading it at a, at a more surface level, you know, you crack it open, you read a small passage every night or something like that. Or you go to church and they read some passage about, you know, whatever, Old Testament stuff maybe. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. Do, do you think it's... Because I kind of feel like, you know, I too was raised with this, you know, inherent kind of christian homophobia that i had to actively you know get rid of in my life um, yeah and you know that was that was difficult um but that's one of the things that i kind of shed when i also shed uh my religion you know
0: yeah um, yeah
1: and i just i don't know i i kind of i just wonder if you know i picked that up along with all the other christian teachings and yeah. stuff
0: yeah i mean i i i mean the the bible is is horrible in 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 parts um and in in quite large parts i think it's pretty horrible um and it's a book i think and, and i think this comes back to education that uh if you're not taught how to use it and how to read it, it can be used to justify anything you want to justify with it. So it was used to justify slavery, right? 150 years ago, and it's still being used to, to justify homophobia today. Um, it's been, it certainly is still used to justify misogyny as well. Um, so you can, you can use the Bible to, to support your hatred of basically whoever you want to hate. Um, and I think, like I say, I think for me, the answer is education. And one of my real kind of frustrations with the institutional church is that we're not good at educating people on how to read the Bible well. Um, so absolutely. If you, if you, well, so, uh, I used to be a chaplain for a mental health hospital. And there was a young woman on the ward who around Christmas was, was really upset and asked if she could speak to me. So I spoke with her for a while and she told me, um, that the reason why she was in the hospital was that she had attempted, uh, suicide. Um, and that now she had all of these horrible feelings of depression, shame, um, anxiety, you know, just this horrible like cocktail of, of, nasty feelings living in her that she was struggling to learn how to live with. And her fear was that um God was punishing her for having tried to kill herself and that that's why she felt the way that she felt while she was in hospital. And this, th- this happens just after we had kind of had a, a Christmas carol kind of thing in the hospital. And just after that, it had happened because she noticed everybody feeling, um, happy and warm and together around these kind of religious songs. And she felt the opposite. She felt um, alone and, and horrible around them. Um, and so I spent some time with her um, and I told her that um, I certainly don't believe in a God who punishes people full stop, let alone punishes them in such a horrible sadistic way as to make her feel what she was feeling. Um, and I ended by uh, reading her one of the Psalms, which, which is uh, one of the kind of, what you know, some of the Psalms are horrible, <laughs> but this was a really nice one <laughs> um, <laughs> about God protecting you and looking after you and all that kind of stuff. And she said, as I was getting ready to leave, hey, could I have a copy of, of that Psalm because I'd like to read it um, again. And I said, of course, that's fine. I'll bring you a Bible next time I come in and you can keep it. And literally, as I was walking out the door, I thought, Uh, no actually no i there's i cannot in good conscience give this girl a bible because without some education on how to read it um she could open it to a random passage and find a passage that completely supports all of her ideas about god punishing her um for having tried to kill herself god making her feel things you know justifying the horrible prejudice that we've talked about and actually to give someone so vulnerable and with such a um so much trepidation about the idea of God to just give them a bible and say there you go and leave her to it would have been a really i think immoral thing to do um because i don't know what she would have drawn out of it mm-hmm. um so yeah so i do think the key is definitely education and obviously that takes time and it's something that you know people need to commit to and learn you know like I say learn how to read it and and that's a difficult thing to to expect of people I uh, i think um and i'm i'm conscious that what i'm implying in saying this is that my way of reading the bible is right and everybody else's is wrong <laughs> um, but it is damn it <laughs> um so the, what i understand of in the bible uh, of the bible is that it's a The Old Testament is a collection of stories, um, poetry, some history, some politics, um, but but a a kind of a snapshot of a culture, you know, written over four hundred years or so, um, and they're discovering who they are as a people and who God is, Um, and along the way, you know, uh, along those four hundred years, having some terrible ideas about who God is and some hateful and some absolutely tribal ideas about who God is but for me the Bible reaches its kind of pinnacle in the gospel stories and in the Jesus stuff and that's that's really the kind of the moment where God kind of I guess reveals who he is to this group of people into the world and in doing so reveals what they got right about God and also what they got wrong about God so part of the key is God reveals himself as not being a tribal God. So I understand the Jesus story as being um, almost a counter religious story. If religion is tribal, then the Jesus stuff is, is saying, this is wrong. You've, you've missed the point here. Um, And kind of saying, anytime you create uh, a tribe or a bubble or whatever you want to call it, God's call is to go to the people who are outside of that tribe or outside of that bubble and make community with them. So anytime you're in a community at the expense of others, when you're scapegoating others, whether that's another tribe or an individual or whoever it is, you've, you've got it wrong here. You've, you've misinterpreted what this is all about because the whole thing is let's knock those tribal walls down. Let's, let's, let's tear this apart, you know? So Jesus dies in the, the curtain in the temple gets torn in half, you know, that there is no in and out anymore, that God is on everybody's side. Um, But that's a, that's a, a conclusion that I've come – well, it's not a conclusion because my thinking will probably, I hope, keep on changing and keep on evolving, but I've got to that place after two decades of theological education. Um, right. So it's really – like I'm in a really weird place with church at the moment, man. Because I, I, st- I really believe in in the message of of, of Christ. I, I really believe in everything that I've just said. But at the same time, I really am not into the idea of going to church right now because I feel like church is so so caught up in the tribal thing. And sometimes I wonder if it's an institution beyond repair. Sometimes I wonder if maybe the church just needs to close its doors once and for all. And let's, let's start from scratch. Let's go back to the Jesus stuff and, and start again. But then that happens every few hundred years in history, right? The church divides and splits and whatever else. And we end up just doing the same thing all over again. So I don't really know if that's the answer either. Right. Um That's a really long winded way of saying Um that yeah, man, the tribal stuff is definitely there in the Bible. Um, you, you can't get away from it. Um, but I don't, but I don't think it's the point of the Bible. I think the mm-hmm. point of the Bible is exactly the opposite is to say, look, this is how to do it wrong. And this is how to do it right. Um, but I don't know what that looks like in practice in terms of Christianity in the 21st century. Um, how, how do we do that? How do we build those communities? Uh, yeah, man, I don't really know.
1: Yeah, I mean, that, that is, that's is—that's a really hard place to get to um, because, you know, it is, you know, the reason I ask the question is because it is, it, you know, it is hard to spend 20 years in theology. Uh, mm. you, you know what I mean? Not necessarily if you're the type of person who wants to study that, but if you're the type of person who does something else, uh, you know what I mean? It might be hard to get that level of um understanding of the Bible and really get to spend that kind of time with it. You know what I mean? And build that sort of relationship with it. Um, And so, you know, for a lot of people, I think, you know, again, they'll just read kind of at a surface level and um, distill out of it, whatever it is that, that seems to make sense from the, from that, you know, limited passage that they read. And so then, then they almost have to rely on somebody like yourself who has spent a lot of time, studying it um to explain how they should read it and explain you know how how it is that that person interprets stuff um but that almost seems to me to get back to the religion thing a little bit Um, yeah yeah you know what i mean you still then have kind of the subject matter expert exactly um,
0: yeah it's elitist you, you know
1: yeah right yeah so so i just i do wonder you know how to how to square that circle Mm. and for me you know it was kind of a rejection of um kind of the basic thesis of god and jesus you know kind of creating everything and running the show Mm -hmm. but um i'm sure that's not the the only option Uh, i just don't know how
0: yeah yeah you know how that would come about I mean I wonder if the maybe the 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 church and maybe even society outside of the church as well just needs to rethink the way in which we use the bible altogether um so that's that's not to say um we should get rid of it um but it, it's it's become almost a venerated text, which I think is wrong. Um, so, so in, in Islam, for example, the Quran is the idea is that it's literally word for word, the words that the angel Gabriel spoke to Muhammad, which he wrote down. So the Quran is the number one supreme revelation of God in Islam, and so like if you if you buy a copy of the Quran in uh, in an English bookshop, you'll find that it's still written in Arabic with an English translation to one side because it's so important, so fundamental that the text is still the same, that it's been the same for one and a half thousand years ever since uh, Muhammad first wrote it down. Um, that's not what the Bible is. So in Christianity, the supreme revelation of God isn't a text. It's a person. It's the person of Jesus. And the Bible is a written record of this group of people and of the person of Jesus and, and that kind of thing. And I think in certain um, parts of the church, what's happened is that we have started to treat the Bible as if it's the Quran, as if it's the most, the number one supreme thing, more important than anything else. And I don't believe that it is I believe that it's a it's a record of of that thing which is the most important thing the most supreme thing you know that, that it's a record of, of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus and and the culture in which he was born into um so I wonder if that's part of the answer that maybe part of the damage that's being done at the moment is we tell people that the Bible is the number one most important thing the number one, best not not just the best book but the best thing you can possibly do with your time is to read the bible and then to not train people in how to do it um of course that's going to fuck people up right um <laughs> and i i I just wonder if maybe and i mean i know i mean i, I like i said i don't know who's going to listen to this but i know i've got friends who if they listen to this will be really not up for the suggestion at all. That's me putting it lightly. Like they will be very opposed to what I'm saying, but just to, to recognize the Bible for what it is, which is a book written by humans. Um, some of it, you know, two and a half thousand years ago. Um, and to say it's okay to be critical of this book and to read it critically and that doesn't mean that it's not an important book, um, maybe even the the most important book. But you can still read it critically. You can still engage your kind of thinking faculties while you're reading it. You can still read it and go, well, I'm not sure I'm up for this, but this doesn't really make sense. And to have a conversation with, well, for one, to have a conversation with the book itself, but also to have a conversation with the community. You know, the the people around you. What do you think about this? Do you agree with it? And to to allow yourself to think creatively, um. And I guess, like, for me, that's a difference between, like, poetry and prose, that we've treated the Bible like prose for too long, which is, like, um, a kind of – is it right – I can't remember if it's left brain or right brain, whichever one is the kind of – the numbers and the statistics one. Like, it's a history book, it's a textbook, it's a fact, you can't disagree with it. Whereas, for me, poetry is, like – The point is that poetry leads you to a place beyond itself right it engages something in you and you can have a dialogue with poetry and you can be moved by poetry you can you can be you can feel angry about poetry and you can also feel you know love about poetry um and i wonder if we started to talk about the bible not as a book of poetry because clearly it isn't but in a more poetic way in a way that's like this isn't the end goal. The Bible isn't the final destination that you're going to get to on your journey. The Bible is the starting point. When I worked for a cathedral, um, we used to do a thing on Sunday mornings before church, which was called Breakfast with the Bible. Um, and Breakfast with the Bible was, I think, one of the best ways that I've seen of engaging people with the Bible. Because what would happen is we'd get a, a group of... 18 or 19 people, um, who would come together on a Sunday morning and we'd, uh, you know, we'd read whatever little text was prepared for that day. And then as a community, we'd spend half an hour, 45 minutes having breakfast together, but then kind of pulling the text apart and looking at it and asking, what does this mean? And, you know, where does this come from? And disagreeing with each other, you know, having, having, um, arguments that, that, didn't result in kind of falling out, but that resulted in a kind of deeper engagement with, with the text, um, and with each other. Um, and I think that's the kind of way of reading the Bible that I'd really want to be, be promoting that it's, it's, it's togetherness. Um, so so I'm really distracted because my cat's just gone absolutely mental (laughs) and it's charging around the room. I don't know if you can hear that in the background, but, um, she's just flipping out. Um, I can yeah I can hear a little bit
1: of like kind of scratching and running around kind of stuff. Yeah
0: yeah 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 she she's got like a the, I've got like a really tall scratching post here in the corner of the room and she like keeps jumping up on it and holding on to the side of it like wide-eyed and insane and then jumping off and running away and then coming back. Um huh. So anyway, that that kind of ruined my uh, highfalutin thinking. <laughs> but but yeah, that's a uh, no.
1: that um, I think the idea that, of disagreeing, being able to disagree with the Bible, I, I think is really important because what I see is a lot of people professing, you know, I believe the Bible, I live, live my life, you know, by the Bible mm-hmm. and whatever. And then the way that they deal with passages um, like I think there's a passage in there that speaks about, you know, explicitly about like killing people who have certain sexual orientations and this sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Just super homophobic stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, um, their way of dealing with that is to just gloss over it. But that's always made me uncomfortable. The idea that you – you know would say i subscribe to what's in this book and i hold this thing to be true and correct and this is the way i live my life yeah. and then when you get to the messy bits you just don't deal with them you just sweep them under the rug and pretend they're not there even though you know that they are mm-hmm. and then move on mm-hmm. you know what i mean and i think that those need to be dealt with
0: yeah yeah um, yeah
1: you know i think i really think that they do i think one of the things that i like about um, the Catholic Church's, um, you know, kind of approach is that they have the catechism that kind of lays out what they believe. So you can look up, and I think they have online catechisms, I'm pretty sure, where you can look up different topics and then read, read through there and see what their interpretation of the Bible is and what their stance is. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I think that that's, I think that that's good, you know, um, Because they have to deal with they have to deal with these different
0: um these different bits. So Yeah, although the I guess the critique of that is that it 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 kind of culminates in a kind of expression of truth which is once and for all, this is the bottom line, this is what we as a community believe in. Um so you sign up to this or you don't sign up at all. Um and yeah, I think I think Catholic and evangelical churches both have that kind of tendency of well look this this is ultimately the bottom line um i guess the difference is that the catholic church that comes from way up on high um from the pope whereas maybe evangelical churches tend to do that in-house and have their own kind of you know your your particular church will have its statement of faith um Mm -hmm. but like I i feel like potentially at its worst that closes the conversation down Because you can kind of say, well, let's have a conversation about this. And then at the end of the conversation, I'll tell you what we really believe. um, Which is kind of like, well, why have the conversation at all?
1: Yeah, that's, yeah, and that's where it gets really tricky for me, you know, because, um, I think I've, I've mentioned in the past, one of these uh, people that I used to go to school with way back in the day is has been working since then. So since, I don't know, 2007-ish maybe or something. Maybe 2005? Okay. No. Even earlier. Maybe 15 years. I don't know. Whatever that, whatever. Somewhere around there. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Um, but they work as a, you know, um, kind of campus. Uh, I don't want to say... A youth minister but he leads you know youth college level people in these like bible studies and that sort of thing um and his uh, uh hey johnny could you go upstairs bud um and his uh we've also got our you know this it wouldn't be it wouldn't be a podcast recorded in the age of covid if we didn't have these interruptions, yeah, from, right? from the cats and children. the kids, <laughs> right? Yeah, that now it's official. Um, I would like to hear Johnny's thoughts on
0: these issues. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, right. Another time, another. Um, time. And and that's a whole another thing because you know we we talk to him about the Bible and Christianity from our own perspective. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so it's you know, but my parents are Catholic, and so there's this whole. You know, so it's, it's interesting raising a kid and actively not be, you know, being not, not only not religious, but, um, you know, not, uh, not even Christian or, mm-hmm. you know, below, yeah. or anything, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but, uh, anyway,
0: um, what was I saying? You're talking um, about your, your friend who works on a, at a university leads Bible studies and that kind of stuff. Right. Thank you. Um
1: yeah so that's where it gets tricky for me because to me there's almost like this tug of war where you know you want to I think I would think that it would make sense to find to figure out what the bible was saying and then be like okay cool that's what the bible's saying and then once you've cracked that code you know share that with other people and say hey this is what the bible's saying um but i get how those kind of dogmatic those, those ideas become dogmatic. And then, you know, then it's kind of like an all or nothing, Hey, you know, subscribe to this or don't if you, if you want to be part of our church. And so this guy that I um, know from a long time ago, um, you know, he reads the Bible, he reads the section on homosexuality. It says uh, to murder homosexual people. And I asked him about that and was like, you know, what do you think about this? And he was like, well, you know, it's against our laws, so, you know, I'm not going to do it. And I was like, well, I mean, is that the only thing holding you back from that? If you heard a voice in your head that you thought was God, God just came down in front of you and told you to follow his Bible to the letter, would you do it? And he was like, yeah, then I would, because it's coming from God and his ways are higher than mine and blah, 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 blah. Oh, man. And it's throwing out the autonomy of like, you you know, using your own morality. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. and you know Sorry. i could sit here and say you know oh well he's a good guy or he's fun or you know whatever um or he treated me great you know yeah. um yeah but if the reality is if this particular individual gets you know uh, a voice in his head which as an agnostic i would view as some kind of mental disorder yeah, yeah, yeah. but he being somebody who i mean not only is this his ideology but he is actively seeking college students and leading Bible studies, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. on this through an organization that is nationwide, maybe international, I don't know. And its mission is to uh, evangelize these teenagers, these college age kids, a lot of them who are not involved with Christianity at all. Um, And his voice is... Just as um, there are no barriers to his voice getting out there, um, above and beyond there are, you know, barriers to like your voice or or another person's voice getting out there. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's, that's kind of the thing. It's like, to me, the Bible is almost like, it's like playing with fi- fire. There may be a, tr- a good way to read it and a good way to engage it. But so many people don't, and it's really easy to just pick it up and say, "Here's what's up. This is what it says. This is what I'm going to do." Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I mean, and on the face of it, that seems correct. You know, if that passage says that, then well, that passage says that. And if you you know want to sign on, then then um, it might almost seem like a lot of almost might seem like a lot of, you know, it would take a lot of acrobatics to get, you know, for instance, for him, if we had him in this conversation, um, Mm -hmm. he would view what you and I are talking about as just a bunch of acrobatics to get around the reality of the text. And he would say, well, we just need to get more comfortable with the fact that God's ways are higher than ours. He knows what he's doing. And he put that passage in the Bible for a reason, because he wanted people to follow it
0: you know what i mean yeah yeah yeah. although i would uh argue and obviously he would disagree with me but i would argue that he's doing more mental acrobatics than we are um because to suggest that the bible is one coherent whole that never disagrees with itself um and has one exclusive narrative to tell require some mental gymnastics, like some real flexibility. <laughs> um, because there are clearly bits in the Bible that explicitly disagree with each other. And there are clearly different viewpoints and different voices coming across in the Bible. So he, he would say that you and I are kind of doing some mental acrobatics to, to get over a simple truth. I would say that the idea of there being a simple truth involves Mental acrobatics that he's probably not even aware that he's doing, um, mm-hmm. but but obviously he would strongly disagree with that. <laughs> right, right. I see.
1: So you're saying you're saying, don't look at this one passage only. Look at the context and look at the whole Bible to get that
0: context. Um, yeah, and even I mean, I, even beyond that, to say you know, I don't know. I don't think I would say to someone, look at the whole Bible because. I mean, hell, I don't think I've looked at the whole Bible. Like there's, there's a, I've got, I've got things to do, man. I've, I've got a job. <laughs> I've got video games. I want to play right, <laughs> like right, Pokemon. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but to say, you know, the, just that thing of like the Bible isn't one book, the Bible isn't one, like one fixed narrative that, has a beginning middle and an end and a clear message throughout it the bible is a collection of different books written by different people at different times for different reasons um and mm-hmm. so i i think i think it's much harder intellectually to to read the bible as um uh, uh, what's the what's the phrase um infallible um to read the bible as this is God's one voice, one story, you know, there, there's only one thing, n- not one thing, but do you know what I mean? Like it doesn't disagree with itself at all. There's no dialogue in the Bible. This is, you know, like I guess trying to read the Bible as if it was the Quran, like it was one text dictated by God requires some mental gymnastics because it, it very obviously isn't, it it, it explicitly isn't. Um, and like I say, there are, there are books in the Bible written in response to other books in the bible
1: like i'm in a you know i'm also in a weird spot right because i used to believe Mm. in in all these things and now i'm kind of viewing like the bible you know externally um but i see what you're saying i mean i i think that you're saying that that it's uh there's a lot to it and um you know it's it's got to be read with with other parts of it in mind it's got to be like truly studied not just kind of like studied
0: like on the you know on the surface um yeah you know and not but uh but they're sorry i was just going to say not necessarily studied in an academic ivory tower but but studied with you know with, with 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 real people with with homeless people and and with gay people and with people who are coming from different perspectives to where you're coming from um yeah, it's, it's something that needs to be like engaged with. Um, so I remember, uh, when I was at uni, one of my lecturers, I think it was one of my lecturers, but he, anyway, whoever it was, they pointed out to me that, um, when the Bible was written, people couldn't read. It wasn't normal for people to be able to read. And so mm. the books of the Bible are written to be performed right? They're written to be read to people. Um, and performance is an art, not a science. And there, there are inflections that you can use in performance. And there are little nods to the audience that you can do. And little kind of, even like nudge, nudge, wink, wink, kind of jokes in, in a performance and that kind of thing, which, you know, when we the way in which we read the Bible today, especially that very individualistic way of reading it, you know, in your bedroom in your quiet time, half an hour before you start the day, would have been completely alien to the people who were writing it. That that's just not. I mean, apart from the fact that the printing press didn't exist, so it wouldn't have been possible for everyone to have a copy. But but right. people couldn't read, so it it was a communal act. The act of digesting these scriptures was something that we did together in community with a performance at the center of it and then discussion and dialogue and debate and that kind of stuff as people responded to it. Um, and, and that whole kind of, uh, that way of thinking, which is here is, here is a message handwritten by God once and for all that I can read to myself in my bedroom and learn what God is telling me would just not have made sense to the people who were reading it at the time at which it was written. Hmm it's a, it's a like a distinctly modern like post printing press way of engaging with with literature um so even yeah even our way of reading and engaging with it is so radically different to to how what it was at the time um how can we possibly expect to say that we have the the like the one correct interpretation of it
1: Yeah. Yeah. It certainly seems like it would do better to be a book that is continually updated.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I've uh, thought that.
1: I'm always trying to like, you know, run in parallel, you know, sort of science and science texts with religion and religious texts. And one major difference is that, you know, we aren't relying on, the science book from 2000 years ago that says, mm. you know, this is how birds fly or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because it's wrong. It's just, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, 100% wrong. And, um, we didn't understand things, but what we do is instead of keeping that book around, you know, as like the book we reference, we kind of put that on a different shelf and then we use the latest version of, you know, aerodynamics and that will tell you what our current understanding is and in 10 years maybe we'll have discovered some other stuff and some stuff will be retired Mm -hmm. from you know this book and we'll go with that new understanding yeah yeah but i feel like you know maybe that would be it would be sacrilege almost to alter the bible
0: well yeah. yeah
1: i mean i know it's been done a zillion times and all these books, you know, all these different versions of it have some books and don't have other books, but
0: yeah, you know,
1: to in today's world say, Hey, I'm going to yank these books out and I'm going to add these and I'm going to write a couple of my own. Yeah. You know, that, that is some dicey territory.
0: Yeah. Well, completely. And again, like I remember when I was growing up, there was a, I think it's in the book of revelation where it talks about, you know, you, you shall not add or remove anything to this book. Like that's, that's a, that's a bad thing to do. Um, but again, that's, that's, that was written in the context of one person writing a letter, uh, not in the context of the canon of scripture that we have today, which was only compiled 300 years later. Um, so to, you know, I was taught, therefore don't, fuck around with the bible basically um I probably right. wasn't <laughs> i was i definitely wasn't taught it in that phrase <laughs> but that of it. um but that, that clearly isn't what it means because it can't mean that because the bible didn't exist when that book was written um so i quite like the like um you know like in possibly as a scientist there's a kind of recognition that let's say like um you know a platonic understanding of the universe from you know two and a half thousand years ago um is part of our story and it's interesting to look at that as kind of a the the granddaddy of modern science and understanding how the universe works and everything while also recognizing that well clearly it's not right (laughs) like it clearly our thinking has evolved um Mm -hmm. and I, again, I mean, there'll be people who will not be happy with me saying this, but I, I kind of feel like we can do that with the Bible, that we can recognize this as part of our story. It's part of our cultural identity. It's part of who we are, but there are clearly bits in it that aren't right. And that we have moved beyond as a civilization, as a society and rightly so. Um, and I wonder, I mean, I've, because I'm, kind of lame like this i've wondered you know if if i was compiling the bible today you know if it was if it was me at the council of people who are bringing all the books together to make you know a, a set of scriptures what books would be in it um you know what modern books would be in it you know would i don't know nelson mandela's writing from prison would they be in it you know um would some of girard's stuff be in it i don't really know but i i i certainly think I I mean whatever it'll never happen we'll never get to a place where we see the bible as a as a changeable text I don't think because culture religious culture just wouldn't let that happen and I'm not sure if we should or not but certainly the idea that the bible isn't the end of the conversation I think that's that's one worth holding on to that the the, the bible should lead you into conversation not shut conversation down so Right. And in, in a way, the Bible asks the question rather than giving the answer, mm-hmm. I would say.